It is the only way that we can be with you. And that is by your grace. The unmerited favor that you have not just bestowed upon us, but lavishly poured out your grace upon us. We, because of our complete corruption within our nature, cannot ever live a good enough life to please you. We will never be allowed in your presence apart from your grace. And it was your grace that sent your son to die on the cross, to pay that penalty for our sins, and to transfer his perfect righteousness to our account, so that when you see us, you see Jesus Christ. We praise you that you made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord, it is that very righteousness that you desire in us, the ability to live a righteous life through you that we will discuss this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, Father, it is not about me. It is about you. And I humbly ask that you would speak through me using the gift that you have given me to once again shine the light upon you, to put your Son on display, and to, through your Spirit, speak to us, to convict us of sin, righteousness, judgment, to encourage your body, to build up the body, that your body may grow, and that we may present to you a bride who is pure and spotless, without blemish, sanctified for you. And so speak through me. Once again, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Lord, it's good to, to be with everybody, at least on video. We look forward to the time when we will be here in person, and that day is coming as King County moves into phase two. Um, we are, as a leadership of Bible Chapel, praying and evaluating when we kind of open up, and I can guarantee you this, it will be a small, gradual opening, but uh, know that we have not forgotten about you and will be praying for you. And one of the highlights of our week is our Zoom Bible studies on Wednesday night. And if you can be a part of that, I highly encourage you to do that. But I also just wanted to begin by just reminding us of last week's message, which was entitled, Truth Matters. And just the idea of, do you really believe that the truths of God are really real? And does your lifestyle reflect that? Because as you will learn, it is you a child of God, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you alone that are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is an emphatic you. 
in the original Greek language. We are the hope of the world. We prevent the decay that is going on in our society, and we have a light that shines in a dark, dark world. And we've seen, as the data shows and the surveys show and life experiences show, that this, there's a rapid erosion of, of a biblical values and morals and the foundation in our society. And we're seeing that play out. And the only way that will change is by God's design is through his children being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But before you can do that, you'll learn this morning, it's all about character. It's all about character. And so believe it or not, today I wanted to begin our sermon series for this week entitled Different, talking about, of all things, politics uh, and religion today. What I'm going to do is kind of give a general picture of the landscape of the politics and religion today. We'll compare it to the time of Jesus and the politics and religion and kind of see where the Sermon on the Mount just completely destroys both the ideals of the world uh, and how it is completely relevant even to today. And so I've came up, come up with this. Hopefully you can see this. Um, this is of my own creation. I didn't find this anywhere. But just to give you a general picture of kind of what's going on in our, our world, um, you can see this is kind of the middle right here. And uh, way to the far left, as we look at the, our political landscape, you'd have the radical liberals. Underneath there is it's called CHAZ. That's the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone for us that are in Washington. And obviously that's a radical liberal ideal. Um, in the, the six blocks, I think it is, that they've taken over and are trying to just do whatever they want to do. They've really hijacked the Black Lives Matter message as you read the papers today and so on. But anyways, they are way radical out there. Uh, you have a, a, a more progressive Democrat in the Democratic Party, and this would be the Democratic side, this would be the Republican side. AOC is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and when you think of her, you're going to think of, you heard of the Green New Deal. Again, it's a progressive, democratic, liberal idea of, of a way to change the world, in essence. You have more of the moderate Democrats, and you probably don't know who this is. This is Chris Coons. He's a, uh, a representative from the state of Delaware. He has a, a divinity degree. He prayed with uh, President Trump in, in July of 2019, I think it was, or sometime in 2019. But it was the moderate Democrats uh, that took over the 2018 the House of Representatives. They were voted in. They obviously are more towards the center. They're not as radical and progressive as the other Democrats in this party. Um, then you have moderate Republicans. Susan Collins was the, the Republican that was on the fence on whether to vote in Brett Kavanaugh. It's not a strong conservative, but that's kind of who she is. Then sadly, a more progressive Republican or a progressive or aggressive conservative would be Mike Pence, or basically a lot of people that would go to conservative churches. Just a conservative traditional values, they are viewed by this part of the, the political landscape as really kind of really progressively conservative. And then obviously on the far right, you have your radical conservatives, the militant groups that uh, just are way out there. But here's my point, and that was of just a real generalization of our political landscape. Each of the political groups that you see behind me, 
they have a set of values and ideals about how to bring about change. Now, since these groups consist of Americans, they grew up being taught and believing that they have a right to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And really, that's what's driving them. The end goal for all of these groups is they want the same goal, which is happiness. But they will go about achieving happiness in radically different ways. This would be our current religious landscape. This next slide. Here we have your, your, your liberals, and these are the mainline denominations, which is interesting because these denominations, as you can see right here, I've listed some of them, the American Baptist Church in the USA, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, uh, the Presbyterian Church, United Church of Christ, United Methodist Church, they were here at some point in time. They were considered conservative. They have moved to li the liberal side over the years. And we would say that these uh, groups here are more, uh, they would, what you call open churches. They accept everybody. They're into tolerance. And when I say accept everybody, uh, even those that are in a sinful lifestyle. They would be pushing the LGBTQ agenda. They are pro-choice. Uh, they don't believe in the uh, marriage between a man and a woman. So they're just far more liberal, and they have gone after these mainline denominations, the ways of the world, which the church historically has done. You have now what grew up out of this in, in response to this. In fact, I remember being a part of a Presbyterian church that broke off from this and when it became an independent church because of their conservative evangelical values. This is where Bible Chapel would fall, more conservative. You have the Assemblies of God Church, Southern Baptist Church, Wesleyan, a lot of independent churches. Um, think of Billy Graham or think of Full Seminary. Those are the conservative religious landscape of America. And then, of course, you have just world religions in general. They're more the pantheistic religions of Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on. The primary religion of today in America is uh, secular humanism or atheism. You have New Age religions, you have Islam, you have Judaism, all those other world religions. So that's kind of the, the religious landscape of our culture right now. Here's the thing. Each of these religious groups have a set of values and ideas about how to bring about change as well. Now I want you to keep in mind that for all the differences between the political groups that I, I listed up there earlier and the religious groups, once again, they all have the same goal. And what is that goal? Happiness. They want everyone to be happy. They want a better society. And they have radically different ways of bringing about this happiness. And I want you to hold on to that thought for a minute about happiness. Because to aid you in your understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, I have an outline for you. This is taken from John Stott, who wrote this 
a while ago, a book about this, but I just thought it kind of summed up the Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7 and lays out an outline for you to kind of grasp in, in smaller sections the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. And what you see here is you have a Christian's character, which is what we'll be talking really about today, the Christian's influence, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, uh, a Christian's righteousness, how you deal with anger and lust and so on, a Christian's piety, uh, fasting and prayer, your ambition that's different than the world, your relationships, how you love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, stuff like that, uh, and a Christian's commitment. Joe kind of talked about this, your commitment to building your foundation as a wise builder, not on sand, but on solid ground. That's just a general overview of an outline of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, remember, remember, I told you to hold on to that thought about happiness. Because Jesus also had a goal. His goal is happiness. Jesus wants you to be happy. Your happiness as a child of, of God, as his brother and sister, as his friend, as your king, he is concerned that you be happy. Now, this should be obvious to all who read the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the first 12 verses, which we'll do in a minute. And in the very first sermon ever recorded as having been preached by Jesus Christ, I want you to see that it begins with a theme of happiness. Since Jesus only spoke what he heard from the Father, I want you to also safely assume this. It is God the Father who also wants you to be happy. So happiness is also your heavenly Father's concern. Happiness in this life. In fact, the theme of happiness is so important to God that he repeats it nine times in 12 verses. It's here you find the word blessed. If you didn't know it, you will this morning, that the word blessed simply means happy or happiness. So let's read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 together this morning. If you don't have your Bibles out or your phones, you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, Jesus that is, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, I say to you, our Lord desires to give men and women, his children, his brothers and sisters, happiness. And as you read these verses, you will see that the ultimate end of our happiness is that it should result in rejoicing and exceeding gladness. Did you see that? So not only does God want our lives to be happy, He wants our lives to be full of joy and gladness. And the first 12 verses lay out the point, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me say that again. Like any good speaker, he starts off with his main theme, his main idea. And the main point of the Sermon on the Mount is happiness. Real happiness. From verse 13 on to the end of chapter 7, it tells us how to make that possible, how it becomes possible. If I were to put it in another way, the Sermon on the Mount reveals the kind of lifestyle that produces this kind of real happiness. I'll make sure you hear me on that. The first 12 verses, the happiness that is found there comes through the, the lifestyle that the rest of the chapter 5, 6, and 7 explain. Now, in order to understand just the significance of these words, there's so much historical context here. Specifically, to these people that Jesus was addressing, at that time in history, let me give you some, a brief historical context. God had not spoken to his people for roughly 400 years. The Old Testament had ended. There was roughly 400 years. We call it the 400 years of silence. Then the New Testament begins. The last book in the, the Old Testament was Malachi. The last thing that God said through his prophet Malachi, this is the way the Old Testament ends, is found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. It's the very last verse. This is what it reads. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God's last words to his people was a curse. Let that sink in. In fact, think about this. How does the Old Testament begin? It begins really with the curse of Adam. The Old Testament begins with a curse, and it literally ends with a curse. Now, check this out. How does the New Testament begin? What is the first thing God says to his people in this first ever recorded sermon? It begins with a blessing. 
The Old Testament, a curse. The New Testament, blessing. God spoke with a curse. Now God is speaking to his people with blessing, with happiness. And that is a dramatic change. Now, to understand the significance of this new message, I want to briefly go back to the word blessing. And I just already discussed, and we know that the word blessing means happiness. And by happiness, and this is what you're going to have to really understand, is what it refers to is an inner happiness. It can actually be translated blissfulness. So it's, it's happiness, it's blissfulness. It's an inner happiness, it's an inner blissfulness, but it's a happiness that is not produced by circumstances and it is not affected by circumstances because as you well know, your circumstances always change. So it is a state of happiness, an existence. And it's a state of happiness that God desires his children live in. And because it is an inner happiness, it refers to character. That's why the first 12 verses talk about character. And I'm going to need you to follow me in this because this is, I think, a really neat point. But this blessedness, this happiness, this blissfulness, it is used to describe God. Many places in the Bible, in Psalm 68, 35, just listen to this. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Think of Ephesians 1, 3, I think it is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to understand this. Whatever this state of happiness, this blessedness, this bliss, whatever it is, it is true of God. It is also true of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6.15 The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So if whatever this blessed this state of happiness, whatever it is, it is true of God and it is true of His Son, Jesus Christ. That means then, and if you were here, I would tell you to all look at me, the only people, the only people who will ever experience this state of happiness, this blessedness, this blissfulness, are those people who can partake of the nature of God the Father and the nature of Jesus Christ. Because if it's there within them, it should be there within his children. And folks, this is exactly what Peter shares. Look at his verse. His divine power, now watch this, has granted to us all, and this is talking to believers, through God's power, things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, the eternal life, the very life of God that he shares with us, that's the life and godliness. It's been given to followers of Jesus Christ, to, to children of God. Now watch this, by which he has granted to us 
his precious and very great promises. And you understand in a moment here why they're so precious and great, because it is through these promises what God has already deposited within you that you can what? Become partakers of the divine nature. That means that that state of happiness, that blessedness that is not affected by circumstances, that's not affected by upcoming vacation or receiving a gift or going to sort of buy something that gives you a temporary feeling of joy or of happiness. No, no, this uh, the constant state of happiness, this bliss is for you. You partake of the divine nature of God. And I'm not making this up. These are the words of Jesus from the Father to his people. Blessed be, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And so it is, if you are not happy, just generally happy most of the time, then there's something wrong. Because that's not God's will for you. And I'm not making light of depression and other illnesses that people have that are real. I get that. Now, it is, again, this happiness, this state of blissfulness, it's only for the citizens of God's kingdom. Only they can know the same state of inner happiness, that inner contentment, that inner bliss, that is known by God and is known by Jesus Christ. So there is no real blessedness apart from that. Do you follow me? And that, I think, I know. If you were to slow down and ponder what I'm saying, if you watch this over and over again, this sermon... That is a, a deeply profound thought of what I'm sharing with you. It could radically reorient your life. And you'll learn this morning maybe why you're not experiencing this happiness. In fact, what I kind of jokingly, I've got a kind of a, a way of us understanding this, is that happiness is like an underground sprinkler system. In the late 80s, the church put in in, a, in our front area here and in all the front area sprinkler system. Well, it stopped working in the mid-90s or something like that. So most of you don't know that there's been there's 11 sprinkler heads all of this front area. Not the front area right by the church, but out there by the sign and up by the pine trees and so on. It was there. It was available to us. And I learned to nag. It kept nagging and nagging Don Teodoro and Tom Harris and others. And finally I wore them down. And, and in a short amount of time, they worked very hard we now have all those sprinklers that are now working, and the hope is that will be green throughout the summer. It'll look very nice and so on. So this nice big green area, it's inviting as you come into the church. Now, it's been there. It's like God depositing his life into a believer. But through his promises, you have to access it. And so when you think of this happiness, it is there for you. But in our case, with the sprinklers, we just had to fix them, get them working again. Same thing with you. You want this happiness? It's available to you. It's in the life of God that he's deposited within you. 
but you've got to access it. And I will tell you how to access this, access it this morning. Now, this also means, another point here, that the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first words, <coughs> excuse me, was written to people who have faith in Jesus Christ. It was not written to unbelievers. This real, true happiness will never be experienced by an unbelieving world. And I think you've seen part of that with this COVID pandemic. Their life is full of anxiety and fear, and they're hoarding and, and so on. And as I said to us in this church, that's not us, because we have God. And so we have peace, a peace that is beyond the world's understanding. We would have a happiness that is not dependent upon circumstances, because we are blessed. We are blessed. It says of God, by the way, that this inner happiness, if you think he's ever frustrated, no. Our God is in the heavens, the scriptures say. He does whatever he pleases. I don't have the ability to do whatever I please, but he's always in this state of blissfulness and of happiness. He's content with himself, with his creation and all things. But the Sermon on the Mount offers nothing to an unbelieving world. In fact, it doesn't even make sense to them. It is utterly useless, ridiculous. And that leads to our next point, what I call senseless. Folks, the Sermon on the Mount is paradoxical. It is paradoxical. Matthew is presenting the kingdom of the Messiah, and it doesn't really fit what the people expected. He is presenting happiness in the words of Jesus Christ that doesn't exactly fit the way that the world understands how one achieves happiness. In fact, it says, who are the happy people? If you were to go back to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and just read these words, don't use the word blessed, use the word happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the weak. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. Does that make sense? It doesn't. Huh? But that's what God says is real happiness. And it sounds like Jesus is saying that the key to the kind of happiness that God lives in, that state of happiness, that state of inner bliss, that the key to that is, now watch this, misery. Wouldn't you not think life would be miserable to be mourn over your sin, to be poor in spirit, to be persecuted? To always be hungry and thirsting. Look at, you know, Jesus must be wrong, but you see, that's 
the whole point. There's a paradox because through all the Beatitudes, if you, as you study them, you'll find this thread of misery, but it results in happiness. So misery, we find, is the key to happiness. And to most people, the whole thing seems absolutely absurd. Because this is what the world says. And you know this message because you've bought into this message. We go back to the first sermon last week. The truth of God and the truth claims of Satan, which are lies. And how we've been impacted by the world. And I challenge you, and I say it again, do you really believe the word of God to be true? Do you really believe it to be really true that your lifestyle shows it? Because this is what the world says that makes people happy. Happy are the rich. Happy are the famous. Happy are the popular. But we know that isn't true. And I want you to see that Jesus, in the very beginning, he exposes the world's message and the world's lies. But still, there are many who seek true happiness in this world. See, God created you to be happy. And he's calling you to himself. And instead of finding happiness in him, they try to find it in the world. Just consider, from the Bible, Solomon. If anybody should have been happy according to the world standards, it was Solomon. Just listen to this. He had nobility, having descended from the royal line of David, through which the Messiah would come. So there's nobody with more nobility than Solomon. His palace was the envy of the world. And it was located in the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. His wealth was so immeasurable, listen to this, his treasure was so vast that it says in the Old Testament that silver was as common as rocks, stones and pebbles. He, his pleasure was fabulous food. He owned vast stables where literally thousands of the finest horses that could be found in the world lived. He had buildings, he had servants, he had vineyards, he had fish ponds, he had gardens, and women, he had them by the hundreds. And his intelligence, there was nobody more wiser, more intelligent than Solomon who ever lived other than Jesus Christ himself. And in the world's evaluation, he had it all. And he should have been an infinitely happy man. But what did he say about all of this? In Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And the word vanity means emptiness. I was reading Jeremiah this week, chapter 2, verse 5, talked about Israel pursuing other idols, seeking satisfaction, seeking happiness there. And it says that they sought after emptiness and they found it to be empty. Seeking happiness in the world apart from God is emptiness. And that's what Solomon also discovered. The New Testament simply puts it this way. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That is not where you find life. That is not where you find happiness. In fact, Solomon goes on to say this. 
Ecclesiastes 5.13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Listen very carefully. It's a gr- not just an evil, it's a saddening, grievous evil and exists under the sun. You know what it is? Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Did you get that? Riches are kept by their owners for their hurt. Let me translate that for you. There's no true satisfaction what the world offers. Jesus, being our creator, he knows this. This is why he came into the world, and what he offered wasn't the things of the world. Now, you need to make no mistake about it. There are some who do. There are our churches. There are other individuals, organizations, the world, in this world, that will promise you financial prosperity, possessions, and success. Sadly, it is, again, I said, also in the church. But, folks, Jesus never, he never offered that. In fact, his message is the opposite. Now, you will find in the sermon as well that you will never find happiness in the world, but it is found in another place. The Apostle Paul put it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, watch this, not on the things of the earth. He's not saying it to punish you. He's saying it's to enhance your fulfillment of happiness. Because happiness is in heaven. It is where Christ is. It is not on earth. The Apostle John put it bluntly, as only he can, do not love the things of this world, or the things in this world. With Adam, the Old Testament began with a curse. And happiness is not found on the cursed earth. Happiness is not found in the cursed earth. It's in another place. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to show you where you need to go. If, where you need to go to find this happiness, if you really will believe what he is saying is really true. That's last week's message again. Do you really believe what we just read in those first 12 verses of Matthew 5, that that's really true. Let's talk about politics and religion in Jesus' time. Here's the political landscape of Jesus' time, and you'll find this, I think, very relevant to today. As you know, the Jews were looking for a political military ruler who would overthrow the Roman Empire and establish an everlasting physical earthly kingdom that was Jewish, the likes of which the world had never seen. Now this thought was so ingrained into the minds of the Jews, which included the disciples, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, not, not Matthew, but Matthew and, and Peter and John and so on, the 12 disciples 
that had been with Jesus for roughly three years, that even after his resurrection, and right as he was being ascended to heaven, they asked Jesus this question in Acts 1-6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Their mind was on a physical, Jewish, earthly kingdom. That was their understanding of a Messiah, the Savior, a political, military ruler. But it wasn't just limited to here. They had other ideas as they viewed Jesus through their politics. The people were clearly looking for the physically miraculous when the Messiah arrived. Do you remember when the people tried to make Jesus a king when he first began his ministry? You may not remember this. But in John 6, verses 12 through 15, listen to this. When they'd eaten their fill, he just fed the 5,000, which is probably closer to 20,000 people when you include women and children. When they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world prophesied by Moses. Watch this. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, why, after feeding the 5,000, did the people seek to forcibly make him their king? Here's where the politics come in. Because they wanted a welfare state. The next morning, the scriptures tell us they showed up again in mass. Why'd they show up? They wanted another free meal. That is Washington. <laughs> You're a welfare state. You don't have to work anymore. We'll provide for you. And that's what they wanted. The people wanted a constant welfare in Jesus' time. They never have to work again. The Messiah will feed us. So what we find is that the people are just focused on the politics of it all. So the Jews were looking for a political kingdom. Did Jesus offer them a political kingdom? No. They're also looking for a welfare state. Did Jesus offer them a welfare state? No. In fact, you'll find not one reference to the social or political aspect of his kingdom ever. Why? Because his kingdom is not of this world. And incidentally, let me take this to us today. This is why the world will never solve the problem of racism. The solution, if you ever read the internet and watch any TV right now, the solution to the problem of racism from the world's perspective, from a physical realm, is let's have conversations about it. Let's educate ourselves. Then let's throw money at it and let's write new legislation. Folks, the physical world cannot transform the spiritual world. 
In other words, the exterior cannot change the interior, the human heart. If you want behavior to change, the heart must change. That's why when raising children, you never are really to focus on the behavior. You're to go to the source of the behavior, which is the heart, which is why you know, one of the most famous parenting books is Shepherding a Child's Heart. Man's heart must change because we know about racism. 50 years, 60 years ago, the 1960s, Martin Luther King Jr., all that, they threw money at it. They educated. They wrote new legislation. How's that worked out? God hates racism. The church should hate racism. Let's be clear on that. But what the world is offering, the change that they want to bring about, they can't do. Jesus put it this way, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Is it shocking that what has gone on now, yesterday and probably today, in the the chaz, the deaths that are happening now, is that shocking? Well, no. It's lawlessness there because the heart is bad in those people and they can only do bad. You will know a tree by its fruit. But a good tree will produce good fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, Jesus says, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. The source, the heart must change. Then the life changes. So, let me keep it to our time right now. In our cancel culture, do you know what a cancel culture is? Let me explain it. You can replace, in our cancel culture, a Confederate flag. You can replace or tear down old statutes representing a bygone era. You can stop wearing conservative T-shirts. You can fire people for using insensitive language in years past. You know all of that. And you can even claim that that is progress. But it, it won't make a difference. Now God knows this, which is why God's kingdom as revealed in the Sermon on the Mount focuses on what from the very beginning? Character. Your being. Who you are inside. So Jesus is not looking for what we do, but what we are. Because what we are, as you know, will determine what we do. Because we live from the heart. Which is why in the outline I showed you, it's a Christian's character. It always starts there. This is the the message of, of the New Testament. The first 11 chapters of Romans lays out all that you are in Jesus Christ in one sense. It's all this great theology. It's only chapter 12 he tells you, then you do. And what is it that you do? Because of this mercy of God, in the first 11 chapters, I offer my body my mind, my will, my whole being to God as a living sacrifice. 
but it's only after you've, who you are, how you're being formed, determines what you do, because we live from the heart. Now let me take it even one step further. The ideas that are given in the Sermon on the Mount, they are, are completely contrary to human ideas about government or kingdoms. The most exalted people in Christ's kingdom would be the lowest of the low in the world's eyes. Now Jesus said this, who was the greatest man to ever live? John the Baptist, right? Who was greater than John the Baptist? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us the answer to that question. He said, it is the one who is least in my kingdom. He is greater than John the Baptist. Huh? That doesn't make sense. In fact, let me take it even further. His kingdom even advocates persecution without retaliation. How's that going for you when you get hurt? How do you respond? But that's not the world's ways. It says what? Exert yourself, demand your rights, hold on your pride, blame others. If that was not completely contrary enough for you, let's go even further. He says this, you are to seek the good of your enemies by loving them and praying for them, the very people that are hurting you. Seek their good. Huh? His kingdom is a different kingdom. It's made up of people who are different than the world. And again, I hate going back to last week. Our lives are to be different. This is the whole purpose of this sermon series, different. We are to be different, and it's showing that we are not doing a good enough job. We are not different. This is why America's biblical moorings, its foundation, it's not just eroding away, it is rapidly being washed away. But you and only you, all of us and only us, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is for believers. Believers, unbelievers, it's not for them. So we are the hope, the only hope. And our lives better be different. And they're not. And so I challenge you again, do you really believe this stuff to be really true? If it's true, It'll be shown in your lifestyle. Now, that may be hard, yes, but what do you get with that? Real happiness. Now, here is the religious landscape. Now, we talked about the politics of Jesus' time. Here's the, the religious landscape of Jesus' time. And I wanted to just kind of throw this up for you with what we put up previously. So you can kind of get an idea. Here's the radical liberals and the radical conservatives and so on. Here would be the four groups of people and kind of where they would fall in line to get us an idea. The zealots would be the radical liberals. You had the Essenes. They were the radical conservatives. And you had your, kind of like your Republican Party, the conservatives were the Pharisees, and the liberals were the Sadducees. I just wanted you to see that. That may help you understand 
the, the religious and the political aspects of Jesus' time. Now, his message, the Sermon on the Mount, it confronted a very religious society as well. There were four main groups within the religion of Judaism. Uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. Here's the Pharisees. They believed that happiness was found in the traditions of their fathers. So in other words, they were big on that, and they considered, they'd be considered your conservative fundamentalists. Not the way out there radical fundamentalists, but just your conservative fundamentalists. The Sadducees, they believed that happiness was found in the present. They'd be called your liberals or your modernists. The Essenes, they believed happiness was found in geographical separation from the world. They'd be called isolationists. They were the ones that separate themselves from all the world. It's where through them we found some of the Old, Testament, Old New Testament scrolls. But they just completely separated themselves from all sin because they thought they could get away from sin if they just moved away from it physically. Then the Zealots, they believed that happiness was found in revolution. They would be called your social activists. So you can see kind of where they fall on this spectrum that I created. So you have the Pharisees that are saying this. You need to go back to the past, to the traditions. Sadducees were saying, no, we need to go ahead. The Essenes were saying, we need to go out. The Zealots were saying, we need to go against. Doesn't it sound like 2020? So we've got the fundamentalists living in the past. We've got the liberals trying to invent a new religion for the present. We've got people who think that holy living is an issue of geography. We have people who think that religion is a matter of leading a march against the latest idea that they disagree with. And so along comes Jesus, and in essence, he says this You guys are all wrong. Can you imagine saying that today? You're all wrong. So to the Pharisees, he was saying, Religion isn't a matter of external observance, your legalism, it's not a matter of the outside. To Sadducee, he was saying, religion is not a matter of the latest human philosophy to accommodate the new day. To Essenes, he was saying, religion is not a matter of separation by geographical location. To Zealots, he was saying this, neither is religion a matter of social activism. You know what he said? My kingdom is inside. It's in the heart. It's not outside rituals. It's not outside philosophy. It's not outside location. It's not outside activism. It starts here. It begins here. It is here. See, it's all about the inside. That's the whole point of the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And when you start here and deal with here, guess what you are? Blessed. That's when you begin to experience happiness. And unless your righteousness, Jesus is saying, exceeds the kind of righteousness laid out in my sermon, you will never enter my kingdom, he says.
God's kingdom, as revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, focuses on being. Again, Jesus is not looking for what we do as much as he's looking at for who we are. Because out of who we are will determine what we do. We live from the heart. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, the first 16 verses of Matthew 5. He goes even on including the first 16 verses which talk about the light of the world and the salt of the earth. He says, they describe the true Christian and they deal with character. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount deals with conduct that grows out of character. See, everyone that studies this with an open mind sees this same pattern. It begins with character. It starts with the heart. It starts on the inside. That is my kingdom. That's where real happiness is. Character always comes before conduct, he goes on to say, because what we are determines what we do. Which is why now in my, with my children... I have built into them, Eric and I have built into them, and they are what they are through our efforts to this point. What they do now is up to them. So I coach them now. I will call them on things, I'll correct them, but that's who they are. Thus, I've trusted God that if I train a child up in the way they should go, they will what? Hopefully not depart from it. But we form character at a very young age. We shepherd the heart. And when you have the kind of character that Jesus demands, and it is what he demands of his kingdom, if you're going to be a citizen of his kingdom, you should have this kind of character. You have that, guess what you find? True happiness. Again, I say it, true happiness is not found in this world. So stop looking for it here. I want to close with a contemporary example of a life in pursuit of happiness from the world. Steve Perry was the lead singer of the rock band Journey from 1977 to 1987. And he is generally regarded as one of the greatest rock and roll voices of all time. During his time with Journey, the band experienced international success. It sold millions of records worldwide. They were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But after 10 years, at the height of their success, he walked away. Last year, he did an interview with Dan Rather. And they discussed why he walked away. And I want to read to you word for word part of the interview. In discussing when I walked away, it's what Steve Perry said. He says, it's a funny idea or a funny thing about success. When you do get a chance to finally live that dream that you wanted when you were 12 years old, and his dream was to be a rock singer and be successful. So when you, you live that dream that you wanted when you were 12 years old, and you're loving it, at some point, a little of the luster starts to wear off if you just keep turning the same wheel over and over again. And I think it leaves room for the opportunity for other enhancements, referring to drugs and alcohol, to replace some of the lack of luster that success once had. Dan Rather then says this, Did you not find that the success was a little like what the novelists call the jealous mistress? The more time you give it, the more time it wants 
the less time you have for yourself and the more distance from your inner self you're becoming because this jealous mistress is demanding more time? Steve Perry responds, man, you just nailed it. That is it. And I think that it is applicable to so many successful dream-come-true situations. I don't think many people survive it. You don't have to look too far to see people who haven't. And I did not want to be one of those people. So I walked away. Steve Perry found success by definition of the world, and he found it lacking. He wasn't really happy. And just credit, he walked away from that lifestyle. You will never find happiness in this world. So once again, do you really believe what you believe is really true? Do you really believe that blessed are, happy are, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are persecuted, those who are reviled? Do you really believe that to be true? And does your lifestyle reflect it? So I want to ask you this morning, ask yourself this question. Do some self-evaluation. Where do you find your happiness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words that you gave your son some 2,000 years ago that are still relevant even to this day. And I pray that we would become a people that find true happiness in what you said is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.